0: You're listening to the Midweek Edition of the 1208 Podcast. Welcome back to the Midweek Edition of the 1208 Podcast. Today we get into the story of Hagar. And uh, we're going to be entering Genesis 16, but only the first half of it. We're going to deal with uh, Hagar's story where it zooms in on her a bit more next time. Today, we're just going to focus on um, Abraham and Sarah and their attempts to have a child through an old custom Uh, which is bringing Hagar into the picture. But before we get there, let's just kind of catch up to speed. God has promised Abraham that he is one day going to have a child that is his own, despite the fact that his family is barren. Specifically, it says Sarah is barren, which would be an ancient way of looking at things, right? Uh, Back in the day, if you could not have children, the blame in ancient times was always put on the female. Obviously, today we know that's not the case. Even the Bible seems to show a few times, we talked about this in a different podcast episode, seems to show that it is possible that they believed that the uh, men could be infertile as well, just based on a a few passages in the Bible, but they're rarer. Um, Whatever the case may be, we actually do see that though this is kind of sexist to just think, well, if I can't have kids, it's the woman's fault. Um, technically it does seem to be true in this case that Sarah is the barren one because Abraham eventually, uh, shows that he is able to produce, uh, through the means of Hagar, which again is the story that we are going to get into today. And as we do, we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at culturally, like why was this the way that they went, Uh, Is that a cultural thing? We're going to look at uh, wives versus concubines, uh, this ancient way of thinking. And we're also going to look at uh, uh, the story of Adam and Eve, because believe it or not, there are hyperlinks, if you will. Sometimes they're called. Uh, In this story, there are allusions, words, Hebrew words, that are used that bring back to mind the story of Adam and Eve. And so we're going to see the connections there. So... With that being said, brace yourselves, we're about to jump in to Genesis 16. All right, before we get into the fine details, let's read Genesis 16, 1 through 6. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, All right, welcome to a new relational sexual soap opera here in the Bible. Uh, look, we we know from every story ever told, when you enter into a conversation that brings sex into the picture outside of just husband and wife, you are bound to have drama. Look, we already know, like there's drama just between husband and wife. Uh, even from a sexual standpoint. But when you bring in more than that in any capacity, a common manifestation of it today would be pornography. Uh, When you bring into it any kind of capacity beyond just husband and wife, things get very soap opera-ish, get very uh, relationally distorted very, very quickly. Now, if we were to turn back to the opening pages of the Bible, we see very clearly that God had only one picture as to how sex worked, right? It was a man and a woman coming together, creating a marriage between the two. This is what sex is in its truest form. It's in marriage. Now, the Bible As we move forward, we start to see that people decided to kind of take on their own wisdom as to how sex might fit into their lives in in ways outside of marriage. Uh, They started uh, operating in things like polygamy, right? Now, polygamy, though it's in the Bible, and though you don't always see the people who practice polygamy, um, you don't always see them like kind of like shamed for it. You do get this impression that it is demeaning and that it is not God's plan because it's outside of Eden. In fact, if we fast forward to Jesus himself, right? He's like, he he looks back to Adam and Eve. Look, how did God set it up in the beginning? It was a man and wife coming together, just one uh, male, female, and that right there is what marriage is. That's what sex is. That's the only capacity in which God has created uh, sex to to operate in. But when we get to stories like this, we see that humanity, again, they think of other ways in which they can pull it off. This is not an improvement upon God's plan. This is actually a disimprovement upon God's plan. And I think that's just important for us to note because we have a lot of different ways in which we like to picture how uh, marriage and sex might work these days. In fact, I think back to, I love sci-fi, right? And so there was a sci-fi show I was watching uh, some time back. And it was picturing this future in which polygamy comes back. uh, But it was reverse, because sci-fi is always trying to think outside the box. Uh, So in this reverse world, it was like one woman with a bunch of husbands. And they tried to phrase this as though it was like a superior way of marriage, a, a better way of of living in which all, all the men in the household are completely fine with it. And the woman's fine with it, you know, and it tried to paint that as a picture of like, really think of morals. Is this so bad? But again, we come back to the original place in the Bible. It's like, look, just husband and wife coming together only means for marriage only means for sex end of story. But then the Bible paints these other pictures of dysfunction in which humans think in their own wisdom of coming up with, with other plans. So that's part of the story that we see in uh, Abraham and Sarah's life. They've waited 10 years for God's promise to come to fruition. God told them that they would have children, and it's not ha- happening yet. And so, you know, to some extent, they've, to some extent, they decide to take matters into their own hands, right? Hey, let's, let's have a child by our own means, by the cultures of our time. Uh I do I do wonder if this is them thinking like uh let's just w- let's just go around God's back and have this happen our own way. Um I do wonder if maybe they're thinking hmm I I wonder if God meant we would have a child but f- through some other direction. You know, it's been 10 years of waiting and maybe now they've started to convince themselves that God's prophetic word that they would have children I wonder if they're like, well, I'm tired of waiting. Maybe God wanted us to do it this way, right? Because you do hear people come to ridiculous assumptions when they're waiting for for God to to show up. So maybe they've convinced themselves that God wants them to do this. I I don't know. We we just don't have those kind of details. But this is the route that they decide to go. The ancient custom of concubines. Though it is interesting here, um Sarah, Sarah and Abraham never, in this passage, refer to Hagar as a concubine. Actually, um, it says that Sarah gave Abraham, a, uh, her servant, as a wife. And that's, that's interesting because the word for, for concubine uh, is pilagesh. Uh, that, that's the common word used for concubine throughout the Bible in in Hebrew. Uh, but Sarai, Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham as a isha. Uh, that right there is not exactly the word that's commonly used for concubine. We, we translate it here as wife. So, um, it's possible that, uh, she wasn't a concubine in the way that we might've, expected her to be like a concubine. Uh, she might have had a higher status um, and maybe she needed that higher status because if if this child was truly going to be Abraham's child and therefore the way in which Sarah, Sarah was going to have children through Abraham by tossing along her servant to Abraham to have sex with, then maybe maybe she needed to be considered a wife in the the culture of the time in order for her child to carry on those rights. So all that being said, you might be like kind of thrown off in general because you're, you're like, okay, but what even is a concubine? <laughs> in fact, I remember asking that question very late in life. Uh, it might have even been college, you know, like it's one of those words in the Bible where you all read it and you're like, oh, concubine. Of course, we all know what that is, but nobody ever really explains it. So let me catch you up to speed on what a concubine was in uh, in ancient times, right? So, uh, a concubine, if you will, uh, actually, let me just read to you. I'm going to read to you a few paragraphs out of the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Concubinage was a common practice throughout the ancient Near East and is attested in Sumeranian, Babylonian, Egyptian, Hittite, Mesopotamian, and Ugaritic texts. Now, let's fast forward here. Uh, The distinction between a wife and a concubine in the ancient world is somewhat ambiguous. The Hebrew texts often use the same vocabulary to describe taking a wife or a concubine. Although modern readers often view a concubine as a sexual mistress, in ancient Israel, a concubine was very much like a second wife. However, legally, a concubine was always subordinate to her master and mistress, and it seems at times that the Israelites held concubines in low esteem. If Exodus twenty-one ten through 11 refers to a concubine, we can deduce that the rights of the primary wife were protected, whereas the concubine had no legal rights, demonstrating her low position in the family hierarchy. In some circumstances, concubines were treated as wives, but they certainly did not experience the full rights of free persons. There's even some evidence that the king passed his concubines on to his successor in the early monarchy. Okay, so right there we get a little bit of a glimpse as to what a concubine is. A uh, concubine is a sexual partner who uh, really has... Uh, no, no rights or lesser rights is seen as kind of a lesser wife of sorts. Now again, Hagar is referred to not with the typical word used for a concubine. So she could have been a little bit of a higher wife, if you will, had had a few more rights than than uh, just a typical concubine would have in ancient times. But I don't know. We, we see both stories of wife and concubine at play in this passage, right? So let's revisit the soap opera. Abraham and Sarah know that there is this ancient custom that uh, would allow you to, if, if the wife had a servant and the wife couldn't have a, a child, then the wife could pass along her servant since she owned this servant. She could pass along the servant to her husband. And since the husband would be having a child with her servant, which she owned, that therefore made that servant's child her own child. So that's, that's the ancient custom. Now, this custom, uh, you know, we haven't seen this like written down in the Bible anywhere so far, but we do see it uh, written down in other ancient laws, actually laws that are even older than the Bible itself, believe it or not. So, like uh, the Code of Hammurabi, this is a very famous uh, ancient law that predates our finished uh, uh, version of of biblical law by hundreds of years. And in the Code of Hammurabi, uh, you actually see them talk about uh, um, how how concubines work. Here, I'll read out of the a dictionary of the Bible dealing with its language, literature, and contents, including the biblical theology. It's a very long subtitle, but still. Uh, Connection with the maid was not marriage, but the children were free, and so was the maid at her master's death. He could acknowledge the children as his. Then they shared equally with the other children. A maid given by her mistress to her master to bear him children was still in the power of her mistress, who could degrade her to slavery again for insolence, but... If she had fulfilled her function, she could not be sold. So here you see in ancient times, in laws that predated even the Bible's law, uh, there were rules about concubines and how they would be treated. And this this particular understanding of if you need to have children, but you can't, you can uh, give a servant, a maid, as your um, your your servant, they could then become a concubine and have children on your behalf. So this already was an ancient custom, as recorded in laws before uh, the the Bible's own laws. All that being said, this is exactly the kind of ancient custom that Abraham and Sarah are practicing. So they they go ahead and pass along Hagar to have uh, their their children. And then Hagar starts acting like a full wife, not like a concubine. This is where the soap opera really takes off. Sex has now changed the scenario. Hagar is this this maidservant, this, this servant of Sarah. And so she's not just like a lowly, lowly servant. She's maybe, if you will, like right-hand man. I don't know if that's a great way to describe it. <laughs> a right-hand woman, if you will. Uh, but she's not a common slave. She's a personal servant. She's now been passed along. And now she's looking at herself as greater than Abraham's official real first wife, because she had a baby and that's huge in ancient times. We had a whole podcast episode about the family and about children and you can go back and check that out. Uh but that episode we we saw just how huge it is to have children. And as soon as Hagar, this personal servant who has been serving Sarah for for much of her life, as soon as Hagar has this child, Uh, She, as soon as she conceives, the Bible tells us that she looked with contempt on her mistress. Uh, Other ways to say that she despised her mistress. She started to treat her mistress lightly. She treated her with contempt. This is the way that having a child... It's changed Hagar's mind about Sarah. She's looking down on Sarah. And it makes Sarah really mad. She says, may the wrong done to me be on you. She takes it out on Abraham. All the wrong done to me, Abraham, may it be on you, right? And that word wrong right there uh, in Hebrew, that often in other places where it's used in the Bible, it can pertain to malicious liars. uh, It can pertain to betrayal. It's even used of physical violence. May the physical violence, may the malicious lies against me, may the betrayal on me be on you, Abraham. So that word being used right there could imply all kinds of things, the, the way in which it's kind of puffed up Hagar. She, you know, she's, she may just be a concubine. She may be the second wife, but either way, it's, it's now brought in the soap opera drama. She's She's treating uh, Sarah in a different way now that she's gotten pregnant, you know, like, hey, I got pregnant. You can't. I'm the better one now. Uh, So here the soap opera is kind of taking off. And, you know, the soap opera is already taken off because Hagar is an Egyptian slave, a female Egyptian slave, if you will. She did not necessarily enter this picture as someone like, yeah, I'd like to have your husband's babies. I'd like to sleep with your husband. I mean, they're they're getting pretty old at this point. There's, there's a lot of awkward scenarios. This is kind of like forced prostitution, if you will, right? I mean, who knows the way in which this was... Uh, Perceived from an emotional perspective, even if it was the way that people thought about things in ancient times. So already you've got this persecution against this Egyptian female slave, which there's irony there, right? Because Egypt's going to be the one to oppress all of the descendants of of Abraham and Sarah down the road. Uh, but there's already that oppression there. Now there's this oppression coming back at Sarah because of the wrong done to her because of the contempt shown to her. And that is going to cause Sarah to lash out in her own soap opera and start to deal harshly with Hagar to the point that Hagar flees from Sarah. Actually, there's certain elements to the Hebrew word that makes the word Hagar. Hagar's name in some ways means fleeing. So like her identity in this story to some extent is, is, uh, uh, in her very name, it's portraying what's going to happen. She's going to flee. She's going to, to run away from Sarah because Sarah deals with her harshly after she gets ticked at her. And that Hebrew word for that word harshly, that can mean physical and psychological abuse. Uh, it carries with it, uh, critical judgment, um, so much to the point that, uh, uh, like we can just very clearly see here, Sarah's sinning in return to the pain that uh, um, Hagar's caused her. So, in this one decision, we have now seen <laughs> the practice of ancient culture has has now turned all of this family into a soap opera. On top of that, it's it's derailed what uh, God's original plan was. No, I'm going to give you guys children. Sarah, I'm going to open your womb to have a baby. She's changed her mind, or she's convinced herself that God meant something else, and she's come up with an alter- uh, an alternative, alternative plan, which Abraham has agreed with, and now just... The additional uh, polygamy, the additional sex, the additional uh, idea as to what, in their own wisdom, they think marriage can look like, has started to tear their family apart, and is adding in new dramatic elements for the the future of of the Hebrews. So, all that being said, there's a lot going on in this story. <laughs> Uh, and the Bible is clear. Like, Again, sometimes we read these ancient stories. We're like, oh, that's just the way they practiced it. There's nothing bad going on here from their minds. If you're paying close attention, the Bible, again, it, it, as I mentioned, it's framing this as a, a, the same thing as Adam and Eve. And that is what we're going to look at next. bible there is an overarching theme about the quest for wisdom and it's actually where where our story in the bible begins adam and eve are put in the garden of eden and they are told do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil this right here is a a kind of wisdom that um well i've heard like one scholar say like they they're supposed to probably have this right I mean, they should be wise. They should know the difference between good and evil. But the means by which they should have it is through God. They live in communion with God. God is seen walking in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. So God can train them, teach them. But he has also given them the option to take of the knowledge of good and evil by a different means. Where they could choose to pursue wisdom by their own means. And it would be flawed, it would be wrong, it would be sin, and it would not be godly wisdom. It would be humanly wisdom to, to take wisdom from a tree that they're not supposed to take it from. But they have that option there, to pursue God's wisdom or to pursue uh, um, wisdom by another means. And that other means is endorsed by Satan right? It's a serpent, which the Bible later is going to say that serpent was Satan. This serpent comes along and he tells them like, uh, uh, it, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil, right? So his temptation is you'll be like God. You'll be wise. You'll know good and evil. Uh, and then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Then they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here in this story, you have the pursuit of wisdom by another means a wisdom that satan endorses because it's not a wisdom in which god gives it to you it's a wisdom in which you you take wisdom for yourself and it's not god's wisdom it's either satan's wisdom or it's wisdom by your own human efforts but it's not it's not turning over to god and having him educate you as to what wisdom is now in today's story about abraham sarah and hagar there are all of these overlapping words these allusions back to the garden of eden causing us to see that this story is abraham and well sarah's the one who kind of initiates it it's sarah operating in her own wisdom to bring about a different idea that uh, is not god's wisdom god has already told them what they need to do Sarah is choosing her own tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Uh, And the the first theme that you see between the two stories is that it is the wife who, you know, if you will, goes about taking the forbidden fruit. It's the wife who comes up with her own place of wisdom and then offers it to the man. But then the man partakes of the same wisdom, partakes of the same fruit, if you will. Uh it says that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai so uh this is a story that is told um, it's it's a story all over again and again here's here's the words that kind of link you through this first off, again, the wife is taking the wisdom, passing it on to her husband um but then you see uh the words took and gave. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now that right there is the same kind of language used for when Eve stumbles. Uh, she, uh, um, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So you see that kind of story continuing. You also see uh later when Abraham when when Sarah yells at Abraham, Abraham's like, "Look, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. In other words, don't treat her as uh the second wife who's who's over you just because she had a baby. You just uh, uh she's still your servant, she's still your maid. You do with her as you please." Now, that's the translation that we have here in the ESV, do to her as you please. However, that word that we're getting please from is is more or less, others translate it like, do to her as you see best, but the word in there is like, good. So like, do to her whatever you see is good. Now, this might be a much lesser possibility for an allusion back to the story of Adam and Eve, but like that word or uh, versions of that word tobe for good in the story of Adam and Eve, you know, it, it's all over the place. God made it. He saw it was good. You've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so here you almost see Abraham, the possibility of him just saying like, look, just as Eve saw like the fruit was a delight to her eyes and she chose uh, because of of her own sight to take on the wisdom that the tree offered her. So you, uh, you out of your own eyes, out of your own wisdom of what you think is good, you do to her whatever you think is good. And then Sarah Deals harshly with her, which clearly is not the good, right? So, like, <laughs> her idea of of what was the good thing to do is not a godly wisdom. She she abuses her her slave. So, right here, you just see again the story of a soap opera of things just just falling apart. It's it's not going well. Things are just uh, um, escalating horribly right now, and it's going to change. Uh, well. I don't know if change is the right word. It's going to affect God's promise, right? Because God promised that Abraham's children would be a great nation. But now one of Abraham's genetically, at least to Abraham, one of his children is not of Sarah's line. It's not of her genetics. And God promised Abraham's children that they were going to be, you know, under a certain promise. So what's going to happen? That we're going to see next week. Uh, But before we get there, I do want to just point out one last thing, because I forgot to say it earlier. This is interesting. Um, Often throughout the Bible, there's kind of this word, uh, well, you know, there's this euphemism that like people know, a husband knows their wife, a wife knows their husband, and that's a euphemism for, for sex, right? Like they knew one each other. What's interesting in in today's passage is Abraham and Sarah. Um, when when Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham, she just says, "Go into my servant." Of course, another euphemism. We know that's talking about sex, uh, but it's not like know my my uh, uh, servant. Not, not like get on that level with her. This this kind of like super intimacy of sex, but rather, again, it's just this idea of like. Take my, take my servant from a sexual standpoint so that we can conceive by our own culture's rules and go around God's promise. Take out of our own wisdom of our knowledge of good and evil, undo God's plan and, and do it our own way. So that's, that's today's story. I know I'm speaking a bit cyclically, <laughs> I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but, uh, I hope that's helpful to you. It shows you again, like we're seeing the Garden of Eden story show up time and time again. And uh, I think the lesson that, you know, if you're like, well, this is great knowledge, but where's the lesson for me? The lesson I think especially is like, where do you get your wisdom from? because that's an overarching theme in the bible in the beginning we could choose between god's wisdom or we could choose through uh through our own wisdom and through the wisdom that satan tempted us to take and we chose forbidden wisdom when you get to the story of solomon god gives him wisdom as a gift and uh um he, he has the ability now to choose. Is he going to be wise like God has given him? And he does to a lot of extent, but then Solomon also falls prey to human wisdom. He ends up with all kinds of wives and concubines. So if Abraham brought in a soap opera just with this one concubine... <laughs> This one extra wife. Just imagine how much drama Solomon must have brought into his life when he chose his own forbidden wisdom. Eventually, when you get to the New Testament, you know, we there's actually uh some ways in which you can see Jesus as wisdom. Um, because in in Solomon's writing, he talks about lady wisdom being a, a form of God. And I know how that sounds weird, but uh um there is a word in the book of Hebrews that seems to liken Jesus to that uh, uh, being that was known as Lady Wisdom. So, calling Jesus himself, he is wisdom. And the Bible says in the New Testament, Paul tells us, like, if anyone needs wisdom, just ask for it, God will give it to you. So, wisdom is open to us. It's always open to us. We are unfortunately infected by the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And we are going to be bound to make decisions and be tempted by the enemy to take of wisdom by our own means. But God is true wisdom. Jesus is true wisdom. He is giving us true wisdom. And we can have that too. If we turn to him and the Bible believes that if we ask for it, we'll get it. So don't practice the art of Abraham and Sarah of Adam and Eve of Solomon, even in all his wisdom falling into temptation, practice the art of turning to God time and time again and taking that wisdom. All right. I hope that helps out. We will return to the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar next week. Specifically Hagar is where we're going to be talking about. Um, actually next week, I'm going to be a general conference for the free Methodist church. We have our national conference happens every four years. So I will be in Florida I can't guarantee I'll have time to make a podcast, so if you don't see it next week, that's why. Uh, But when we do return, we'll be back on the story of Hagar. All right, we'll catch you then.